Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We continue this morning where we began last week with our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. This morning we're looking, however, at just one verse, verse 39. I'm going to read that verse. I'd like to ask Josh if you would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that uh, we've been given to come together as brothers and sisters in you, Lord, to focus on you, to focus on your face, to focus on your word. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak to each and every one of us and present your word. Amen. <clears throat> providentially, the reading this morning was from John chapter 19. And providentially, Ariel did not read the entire chapter, but ended with Jesus bowing his head and saying, it is finished. I would submit to you that here in Gethsemane is where it started. Not to say that it did not start in eternity past when God, the triune one, in his counsel, determined to redeem for himself a people through the sending and through the dying of the Son. And not to say that it didn't begin in Bethlehem when Jesus took on flesh and became a servant of man. But to say that the suffering, the passion of which we are speaking in this series in Matthew begins in Gethsemane, the point at which Jesus takes on or takes to himself the cup of wrath that God has placed in his hand. But do we like Jesus in Gethsemane? Thank you. I know that's a hard question to ask. Do we like? Of course we love Jesus. But when we see him portrayed as he is in Gethsemane, do we like it? Does he seem to waver in his purpose? This verse that we read, is there a conflict of interest between the Son and the Father? Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that reading, not my will but thine be done? Was there a battle of wills going on in Gethsemane? And if it's possible that that were the case, does that not trouble you? That somehow in the heart of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God and the God-man on earth, there could be a conflict of interest between himself and the Father. Last week, we looked at the intensity and also the singularity of Jesus' suffering in the garden. We saw that this was, as the word Gethsemane means, oil press. 
This was the place where God was pleased to crush him, where he became sin on our behalf. And the singularity of this event, that there can be no other Gethsemane, as there can be no other Golgotha, that this was something that we do not imitate, that we do not apply, but rather that we adore. But verse 39, this prayer of our Lord, is this a stumble on his part? There are those who want to see his humanity, his weakness in this, because they equate humanity with stumbling and with falling and with failing. But this is Jesus we're talking about, the sinless one, the man who was also fully God. We're faced with the question, was his will in conflict with the Father's will? And on the surface, the prayer that he lifts up, not my will, but thine be done, would seem to indicate that there was such a conflict in his heart. And so that's why I want to dedicate just one message to that verse. Because frankly, for me, that's troublesome. That there might be a conflict in the heart of the perfect man. That there might even a shadow of turning in the righteous one. I can't accept that. Because then he wouldn't be the perfect offering. He wouldn't be the sinless man. And so we have to look at what he's saying and try to come to an understanding. What is he asking the Father? Some have suggested that Jesus as man did not know if maybe the Father could bring about the redemption of his people by another means. And those who suggest this point to other Places where Jesus admits his own ignorance, particularly eschatologically. In the Olivet Discourse, we saw Jesus saying, No man knows the day in which the Father has set, not even the Son. And so some theologians, in fact, one that I hold in most highest regard, suggest that Jesus is betraying, or not betraying, but portraying his human frailty, his limited understanding and thinking, well, you know, if there's any other way that this can be done, Father, let it be. But the problem with that theory is that Jesus has already indicated to his disciples that he would be betrayed to the high priests and to the Romans, that he would give his life as a ransom for many, and he even told them how he would die. And he said, behold, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, indicating, the scripture says, the manner in which he was to die. Now, if you understand the history of the era, you understand the implications of what that meant. It meant crucifixion, of course. But that meant being handed over to the Romans because the Jews executed by stoning, not by crucifixion. Remember Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church? He was not crucified. He was stoned. So Jesus had an incredible understanding of what he was here to do. He had already said that for this purpose I have come into the world, meaning to die. And now he has already indicated how he would die. So I don't think we can plead human ignorance here. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican Reformed bishop, said, Why is Jesus, who came into the world to die, 
so like one ready to faint at the approach of death. Why is all this? I just love that. It's not even really grammatically correct. What's happening here? Our Lord of glory seems to be weak and stumbling. We are asked to deal with something that is perhaps beyond our ability to comprehend. Not my will, but thine be done. Another commentator, I think very wisely, said, May we be preserved from darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Quoting Job, quoting the Lord in Job. Let's look for a moment at the God-man and see if we can't discern from his own testimony what his will was like, especially in relationship to the will of his Father. Gethsemane, among other things, does reveal to us the true humanity of Jesus Christ, but not in the way that we are accustomed to think. He was fully man, but not fallen man. And so when we think of him as one of us, are we not prone to think of him with the same weaknesses that we have? But we have to understand he did not have those weaknesses because he had no sin. Our weakness, the weakness of our will and the unwillingness of our hearts to obey our Father in heaven is because of our sin. But can that be said of Jesus? It tempts us, this humanity of Christ, to think that a perfect human could possess desires contrary to the will of God. When we read that prayer, not my will but thine be done, we are tempted to think that a perfect and sinless human being could have thoughts or desires contrary to the will of God the Father. But Jesus' own statement concerning his will must guide our understanding of his prayer in Gethsemane. He told his disciples, My bread, my food, is to do the will of my Father and to accomplish his work. He was steadfast. We have this principle given to us when, when Jesus Christ is introduced to us and his life is laid out before us that his will and the Father's will were one. We know from our theology of the unity of the Trinity that there is no conflict between the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, but they are eternally one. And then we come to this prayer, not my will, but thine be done. And let me ask you to think of the significance of the common view that there was, in fact, a conflict of wills here. To will contrary to the will of God. Is that not sin? If to hate a man in one's heart is equivalent to murder, and to lust after a woman in one's heart is equivalent to adultery, then can it not be said to will contrary to the will of God is sin? If we entertain the thought for a moment that Jesus had a will or a desire contrary to the will of God, now let me just say that troubles me. Because that indicates a break in the relationship between the God-man 
and the one who sent him. And I see no indication of such break anywhere in Scripture. So obviously, I'm not understanding his prayer correctly. There was no battle in his soul, a conflict of wills, a battlefield of wills. Nonetheless, he did pray, not my will, but thine be done. There's a word in the Psalms that we really don't know what it means. You see it at the, in the margins after some of the Psalms. It's silah. And the common interpretation of that word is pause for meditation. So that's what we do. And I want to introduce that word after what I'm about to say. For Jesus to will anything contrary to the Father means that the Father must will something contrary to himself. Sila. That the Father could will something contrary to his own nature. Now how can that be? Well, when he wills that an innocent, perfect being should become the object of his righteous wrath. When he wills that a sinless being should become the object of his judgment. Does that not strike you as contrary to the nature of God? That any man should be punished for any sin but his own? And yet because of the nature of God, and because of his steadfast adherence to holiness and righteousness, there is no other way that any sinner could ever be justified unless a sinless being became the object of the wrath that he did not deserve, but we did. This is the uniqueness, again, of Gethsemane. What we read about in Gethsemane, we can't take home with us and say, oh, I'm going to put this into practice. We can't say, as I said last week, oh, I had my Gethsemane. No. We can't have a Gethsemane. We might have a Damascus Road experience, but we can't have a Gethsemane any more than we can have a Golgotha. Because what is happening here is so traumatic that as it occurs, the gospel writers indicate to us that all of creation reacts to it that the sky is darkened, that there are earthquakes, that even the dead are brought back. This is cataclysmic. I like what C.S. Lewis says, or puts in the mouth of Aslan before he goes to his death. He says, the white witch knows the, the magic from the beginning of time, but there is a magic from before the dawn of time of which she knows nothing. Even the devil could read the scriptures, and he could read Isaiah, and he, could un and he could understand that the Messiah was to die, that the servant of Yahweh was to be crushed. But what he couldn't understand, that God would do something that is actually contrary to the nature of God to do, because it is with the nature of God to redeem and save a people for himself. It is the nature of God to be merciful, and it is the nature of God to be just, but no one could figure out how those two would meet and kiss one another. 
And so Jesus, perfectly understanding the nature of his Father as well as the will of his Father, and looking at the cup of wrath and understanding that in him was nothing but sinless perfection. He had already said to his disciples, the ruler of this age is coming, but he has nothing in me. And yet he was to be made sin on our behalf. In fact, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he doesn't say that Jesus, he says, he made him who knew no sin. God the Father made the Son to become sin on our behalf. Echoing Isaiah 53, for it pleased the Lord to crush him. Paul broached this subject. And I bring this up just because I don't want anybody to think I'm making it up. But Paul himself broached this possibility. In Romans chapter 10, when he was talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh, excuse me, chapter 9, he said, For I could wish myself accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now Paul acknowledged that this is a hypothetical. I, I can't do that. Paul could not make himself accursed for his brethren because Paul was accursed. Paul was a redeemed sinner. But Jesus actually became cursed. Accursed. The object of God's wrath. One from whom God would turn his face. We may think that what Jesus did was easy. And I'll admit that before I spent much time in Scripture, I thought, you know, he kind of had an advantage, didn't he? I mean, he was God. You know, I mean, it was kind of foolish for me to think that, childish to think that. But, you know, being God does have its advantages, one would think, coming up against all the things that Jesus faced. And I do believe that being perfect and being divine did give him incredible power that we do see witnessed against nature when he calms the sea, against his enemies when he simply walks through them and goes on his way, against those who tried to trap him when he would turn their nets upon themselves and capture them in their own words. And even against the Romans and the, and the Sanhedrin soldiers who would come up to him later on in this very discourse, and when he would tell them, I am, they would fall down. Now there's a power there. But then I come to Gethsemane, and I realize that being God and being perfect man made what Jesus did incredibly difficult, almost impossible. And that was to become accursed. In the light, or maybe we should say in the darkness of Gethsemane, we see the Son of God becoming what God cannot be. Paul writes about this to the Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Have you ever considered that? 
That under God's righteous judgment, because of our sin, we are born accursed. We are conceived in iniquity. We are brought forth in sin. We live as accursed, dwelling under the wrath of God because of our continued sin. What hope is there for us? The psalmist says, or I'm sorry, um, Micah, the prophet, asks the question, what, what can I give for my soul? 10,000 rivers of oil, thousands of bullocks. Can, can I give my firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? All rhetorical questions. The answer to which is no. My hands are unclean. I cannot even give a ransom for myself, much less someone else. So how is God going to do this? He's going to take one on whom he has no reason to place his wrath. And he's going to make him a curse for all his people. Now, we see that from God's perspective and the sovereignty of God and his mercy and his grace, and we marvel at it. And we rejoice that God from eternity past, before we had ever sinned, had made a way for our salvation, a way that we could have never figured out. We would have stuck with killing animals or maybe our enemies, which is what the pagans have done for generations, you know. We would have never figured out how to do it. And so from God's perspective, and that's the way we frequently look at it, but Gethsemane makes us look at it from Jesus' perspective, from the one who will be made that curse and on whom the sins of all of God's people would be laid, none of his own. And to realize that this is the turmoil of Gethsemane. As the perfect man, Jesus could not will to be accursed of the Father. It was not within him to say, Father, curse me, because he had no sin. But as the perfect man, he could not will otherwise than to do the Father's will. And that is what was tearing him apart in Gethsemane. Not a conflict of wills, but a recognition that what the Father was willing was contrary to the nature of God and yet necessary for the purpose of God in redeeming a people because there was no other way it could be done. Klaus Schilder writes, It is impossible to compare Jesus' soul with a battlefield on which two opposing armies meet and on which one can win only when the other retreats. And yet that is often how we look at Jesus' prayer. Not my will, but thine be done. And that is how we so often try to apply it to our own lives. Not my will, no, not my will. Thine will be done. There's a conflict in us when we pray this prayer. We want something that we think, or we're kind of sure, God doesn't want. And we take that reality of our own fallenness, and we try to foist it upon Jesus, but it doesn't fit him. Jesus did not retreat from before the will of the Father. He advanced to victory through the will of the Father. This is not a retreat. It's not even that type of a conflict. It's really deeper than that. God the Son 
perfect in all respects and without sin as man. Coming to the place in the garden where he would be the object of hatred by the God whom he loved. Silah. But we want to apply these passages. I mentioned last week that that is, that is a reformed tendency. It's also very American. What do I do with this? How do I make this work for me? What do I take away? What's your takeaway from this? And I submitted to you last week that not all Scripture has that kind of a takeaway. That there are some things in Scripture that we're not meant to apply, we're simply meant to adore. We're taught from this passage, and I've heard many sermons, and I'm sure you have as well, that Jesus is teaching us to submit our wills to the will of the Father. And there's no doubt that that is the teaching of Scripture. But there isn't so much as an analogy between our fallen and weak wills and the will of the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's no connection there because of sin. And so to, to try to apply this passage to our lives and to our own wills, while it meets with other scripture where we are to obey God and to submit our wills to him, it diminishes this passage. By raising us up, it lowers Christ. And so I would submit to you that we don't, in this case, imitate Christ because we can't. We can't imitate him on Golgotha and we can't imitate him in Gethsemane. Rather, we contemplate the cost of our salvation, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, to think and to meditate on what it cost the Son of God to save our souls. The anguish and the turmoil that he went through, taking upon himself the wrath of a holy God, is beyond our ability to comprehend, but at least in Gethsemane, we can begin to see it. We can begin to see, once again, that press, that oil press. We can see the wrath of God crushing the object of his love. Behold, my beloved son, in whom my soul is well pleased. Now watch me crush him like an olive. Watch his soul pour out unto death. This is the beginning of what John records in John 19 when Jesus bows his head and says, it is finished. There is no imitating Gethsemane. But there is the sure hope that as John writes in his first epistle, we will be as he is. That there is a day and a world coming in which it will be our bread to do the will of the Father. Let us pray. Our Father, we can only stand in awe as we behold Gethsemane, as we see our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man, being crushed on our behalf. Father, we cannot understand how you could do that, but we do thank you, acknowledging that there is no other way by which man might be saved, except that a sinless man would be the object of your wrath. 
and that in your holy judgment he would be crushed and he would bear the iniquity of many and by his stripes we would be healed. Father, this is the gospel and this is your grace. And to you alone be the glory for all eternity for what you have done on our behalf through Jesus Christ our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen.